You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, 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 friends. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past, and you are listening to For the Love of History, the podcast where we talk about world history, women's history, weird history, and also wonderful author interviews. Today, for the first time ever on the podcast, we have two guests, and I am so excited because that means double the information, double the fun. And today's topic is one that is very important to me. So I'm really, really excited to introduce Dr. Barry White and Dr. Joanne Sleeve. Leva. Oh my gosh, I just asked her to pronounce that for me. So I'm going to introduce our guest one by one because there are so many interesting things about each one of them. So uh, Dr. Barry White is the uh, a pro historian, a professional historian. She worked for 30 years at the Justice Department, uh, prosecuting Nazi criminals, human rights violations, and genocide and working towards genocide prevention. She also worked for 10 years at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Thank you so much, Barry, for coming on the podcast today. Uh, please let us know any other information about yourself that I have left out. Oh, I think that that pretty much covers it. Thank you so much for having us on today, TK. We're, we're really excited to talk to you. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you here. And then uh, we have Joanna Sliva. There we go. I got it. And Joanna is also a professional historian, and she works at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, and she manages academic um, programs there. And Joanna, can you please tell us more about what the uh, conference is all about? Sure. Thank you so much, TK. I echo um, Barry and thanking you for having us on your on your fantastic podcast and for this opportunity to talk about our group, our our book. Uh, so the, the it's a long name. Uh, the conference on Jewish material claims against Germany. In short, the claims conference. This is the only organization that was established actually 1951 in October 1951. Uh, to negotiate with the German government for compensation for Jewish Holocaust survivors around the world. And our mission is also to support Holocaust memory, as well as research, education, and documentation about the Holocaust. Excellent. Thank you for that explanation. I'm, I'm sure I am not the only one who was unaware of this really wonderful organization. Thank you so much. So today it is it goes without saying that we have two very, very qualified, wonderful historians on the podcast. And today we're going to talk about their co-authored book called The Counterfeit Countess. And when I first got the email about having these two lovely ladies on my podcast, I was like, The Counterfeit Countess? This is 
definitely going to be a very interesting book. And since I have uh, read it, it is absolutely wonderful. But uh, you know, could you tell the audience a little bit about what the book is about? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, the completely unknown story of Janina Mailberg. She was a Polish Jewish mathematician who survived the Holocaust in German-occupied Poland by posing as a Polish Christian countess. And using the false papers of Countess Sukodolska, she became an official in the Polish Relief Organization and an officer in the underground Polish Home Army. For her official duties, because she had perfect German, she was the one who negotiated with SS and Nazi officials in Lublin, Poland, to get permission to provide relief aid for non-Jewish Polish victims of Nazi persecution. She actually managed to arrange for the release of thousands of prisoners from Nazi places of, of incarceration, including more than 4,000 from Majdanek concentration camp. Also uh, at Majdanek, she relentlessly badgered the SS for permission to deliver ever greater quantities of food for the prisoners there, ultimately winning permission to make deliveries five days a week of massive quantities of bread and prepared soup for 4,000 prisoners. Wow. And she herself brought these deliveries inside Majdanek, right, into the prisoner compounds, a place where 63,000 Jews were murdered in gas chambers and shooting pits. And she used those deliveries as cover to smuggle supplies and correspondence for uh, members of the resistance who were imprisoned in the camp. At the end of the war, uh, she still remained in, in danger from Poland's new communist rulers because she had been a member of the anti-communist resistance. So okay. she continued to be Janina Sukodolska, this time Dr. Sukodolska, social worker. Wow. She became uh, the deputy head of a nationwide welfare organization, helping wow. uh, Poles in the war-torn country. She managed to get her husband, Henry, who was a philosopher, out of the country. And then in 1950, she managed to escape as well. And they ended up in Chicago, where Henry taught at the University of Chicago. And Yanina was a tenured full professor of mathematics at Illinois Institute of Technology. She died in 1969. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. So what was the, how did, how did you come across this story? What was the inspiration for writing this? Well, in, before she, in, in the 1960s, Yanina wrote a memoir that covers some aspects of her activities during the war. And after she died, her husband, Henry, gave it to a historian uh, before Henry also died. And then in 1989, I gave a conference paper on Majdanek concentration camp. And mm -hmm. afterwards, this historian gave me a carbon copy of the memoir. So I read it and you know, was really astonished by the story. And I was so astonished that I, I really had to question whether it was true. Lublin was the headquarters of Operation Reinhardt, which was the largest mass murder operation of the Holocaust. 1.7 million Jews were murdered. 
and Maidonic played a role in that. And it just mm -hmm. seemed incredible to me that this petite Jewish woman would have negotiated with some of the same officials who were involved in the operation and have had the chutzpah to go into Maidonic where she knew Jews were being killed and to smuggle supplies in right under the very noses of the SS. <laughs> yeah, so I, I did confirm that there was a Countess Sukodolska, post-war Polish studies and former Maidanic prisoners confirmed that she was involved in relief and resistance activities at the camp, but nowhere there was there any indication that she was not a Countess, she was using an alias, much less that she was a Jew. So I could imagine publishing something about the memoir and then having her or her descendants, you know, the real countess come forward and accuse me of fraud. And at that time, well, even today, I, I then I didn't have the, the time or the resources. And also mm -hmm. I don't know Polish. So I, I was not in any position to try to verify the memoir. Mm -hmm. And I knew copies were being given to other archives, including the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I figured some other scholar with the right skills would find it and you know, do the work to verify it. But then decades passed and it didn't seem that anybody had seen it. The historian who gave it to me died. Mm. It really weighed on me. Was I the only historian who knew about it? And if it was true, I thought it was really important and needed to be made known. Yeah. So, yeah, seven years ago, I started looking into it, and, and uh, I found a reference in a footnote of a 1972 book review that made <laughs> me think that Danina really was Countess Sukodolska. I still didn't have the ability to confirm everything in the memoir, though. So mm -hmm. I sent the, uh, the memoir to Joanna, whom I only knew by reputation as an expert mm -hmm on the Holocaust in Poland and asked whether she would be willing to take on the effort of verifying the memoir. So I'll let her take it from here. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so Barry actually met with my with my doctoral supervisor, uh, Professor Deborah Dwork. Uh, I did my PhD at the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University, where Professor Dwork was the founding director. Uh, and so she taught, Barry told, Deborah about this, about the story, about the book. Uh, Deborah contacted me and said, you know, a historian is working on this book. Perhaps you'd be interested in, in speaking with her, perhaps collaborating on this project. And so that's how Barry and I got connected. Uh, and we started talking and uh, I read the memoir and it was just a really incredible story of survival, of one woman's survival. And of the, the various activities that she initiated and that she uh, and that she took part in. And so that was really inspirational for me. And as you can tell already from from what Barry was describing, this was really a detective story. Barry was already doing a lot of the detective work. Uh, and that's really what something that something that also appealed to uh, to me as a researcher to engage in this kind of uh, research. That's so fascinating. Yeah, and, jo and Joanna, I mean, very quickly found a definite proof that Yanina uh, was Countess Sukodolska. Uh, and she ended up finding 
well, both of us, but particularly Joanna, <laughs> so much more about Yanina, her really remarkable life, uh, the, much more than is revealed in the memoir, which, as I said, just mm -hmm. covers some aspects of her activities in World War yeah. II. And uh, so at first we had talked about publishing a memoir and maybe with some text, placing it in context, but we ended up writing a, a biography of her. But thanks to the memoir, we're able to tell the story largely from her perspective, incorporating uh, her thoughts, her observations, even the conversations that she reported. Yeah, that is so incredible. You, you two really are like historian detectives, which is so exciting. What did it feel like, Barry, to get that document all those years ago? Like, I can't even imagine how it would feel to get that primary source in your hands and not really know, is this real? Is this not real? Yeah, I was, I, I was uh, astounded, as I said earlier, <laughs> by the story. And also, I, I don't think of myself as the kind of person who's lucky enough to be handed a document. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and then, and then it was also like, kind of haunted me over the mm -hmm. years that there was this story and maybe it was true. And, and and what what was my responsibility towards it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a big moral issue I think for a lot of historians. What is your responsibility towards telling the history and and getting it out there to the people? Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here, and I'm Gabby, and we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is well, I mean it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So I'd love to know more about your uh, research process, because it really it seems like you you were doing some cutting edge stuff, really digging into things that haven't been looked at before. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. So maybe I can start off on that. Um, this research was really transnational. And when I say that, I mean, we did research on four continents correct wow. like four continents i think seven or eight countries and really both archival re research in state archives and public archives but also in private archives in archives that belong to organizations uh, we really tried to look everywhere to corroborate the information in the memoir and so, of course, when we say about transnational archives, that means that our sources are in different languages. Uh, so Barry and I both know German. Uh, so Barry was taking care of the German uh, German sources. Uh, there were many sources in Polish, obviously, because of where uh, Janina operated, right, in, in German-occupied Poland, working for this Polish uh, relief organization. So uh, many of the documents were, of course, uh, in Polish. And these are both historical documents and I would say genealogical documents as well. And our book combines these various sources to tell uh, the larger story. That's and so of course, along the way, we found out a variety of treasures that we never expected uh, to, to find 
and some of some of the information uh, was we were told that you know we won't have access to it or it doesn't exist. Um, and in the end, we found people who were so excited about the story and they wanted us to tell the story that they really went above and beyond to to help us. And I do want to acknowledge them. We would not have been able to do this without the help of so many um, archivists and genealogists. Uh, so we really are thankful to them. Yeah, especially because we were doing this during the pandemics. We, we, got, we were planning a research trip to Poland and, and Ukraine where uh, Yanina grew up in a part of Poland that now is part of Ukraine. And uh, in, in the spring of 2020, <laughs> that didn't work out. Um, archives were closed. Travel was impossible. Even, even when things started uh, opening up a bit more, it was still very restricted yeah. uh, getting into archives. Uh, and so, and then there would be resurgences of COVID. So we kept planning and putting off the trip. We didn't get there until May 20. 22 and our book deadline was September 1st and we could only go to Poland because by then Russia had invaded oh my god but uh yeah and so it was you know with the help of all of these people is, is what made it possible you know for us to do this research and we we found things in unexpected places but we also mm -hmm. found a lot of dead ends so where we we looked where we expected to find information, we didn't. We never found any uh, birth records for Yanina, for her parents, sure. her siblings. We know she had two sis sisters. Maybe she had more. We don't know. She was a Polish official in post-war Poland. She traveled abroad. There must have been passport records and state records yeah. about her. We couldn't find anything. Joanna in the a listing of, of the relief organization found a file listed as Yanina Sukodolska turned out to be empty. But at the same time, we discovered, for example, in the New York Public Library, letters that Yanina wrote to a friend while she was touring the United States as this Polish official, Yanina Sukodolska, totally blindsided us. So then we started looking in newspapers from that period and we found articles about her visits, including photographs, which provided the vis the visual evidence mm -hmm. that Yanina was Yanina Sukodolska. We, we also tried to trace people whom Yanina and her husband knew. And so, of course, these people are no longer, uh, no longer alive, no longer with us. However, we tried to trace their descendants. And in some cases, in one case, we managed to do that. The, and the son of Yanina and Henry's call, friends uh, provided us with several photographs of what? Yanina and Henry oh. in where they first moved to Canada. So we were able to see you know, that Yanina and Henry kind of like it, it after the war and together with their friends. So that was a really special for us, but what Barry is also, uh, what you know, what Barry was also saying, and I think it's important to make that point. It's about availability, access to archives. So maybe for now we were not able to access those documents, mm. but I sincerely hope that we will be able to mm. get our hands on those uh, documents. And as an archives, the way they work documents are being discovered, they're being cataloged, digitized. And Barry and I did not stop with 
that we have completed the manuscript, sent it off to the publisher, and we're, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Our work continues. We are just so fascinated by the story, and, um, and we hope to find more information. Wow. Yeah. Can I ask? I, uh, I just oh, want, want to note also that when I started out first looking into this, all I knew about Yanina was what Henry wrote in a preface to the memoir. She did not identify herself in her memoir. She only noted that she was the daughter of a wealthy landowner and a mathematician. That's that's all from there. But from Henry's preface, I started with the assumption that she was born Yanina Spinner in 1915 and got her PhD in 1938. Uh, and this I was able to confirm in, in things like who's who of American women uh, in their immigration records, which I got through FOIA requests, Freedom of Information Act. But then I tracked down Henry's student from Chicago and through him got in touch with some philosophers in Poland who studied this intellectual movement that Henry had been part of, and as it turned out, Yanina as well. Wow. And from them, I discovered three photographs, first three photographs that they provided, that Yanina actually was born Pepe Spinner in 1905, not 1915. And she got her PhD in 1928 in philosophy, although her specialty was mathematics. It's so cool. It gives me goosebumps to hear, you know, when women not only go to university, but get their PhD in mm. the 20s. That is so exciting. Oh, I love that so and actually, much. This was a big deal because her, the, the announcement about her degree, that she received her degree, was made in the Jewish newspaper in in the Lvov at that time, Polish Lvov, today Lviv, Ukraine. And we have that announcement. <gasps> Whoa! Oh my gosh, that needs to be like framed and put somewhere very, very important. That is so cool. Can I ask, um, why, why were you denied access to some of the materials in the archives? Was there any reason for that or? I don't think that we've been, I, I can't say that we've been denied access uh, to archives and collections, uh, you know, whatever there was that we wanted to view, we had mm -hmm. access to that. It's that just some archives are not as ex available to. Okay. Okay. I see. That's one thing. And the other thing is that because of the, of how extensive the documents are, they may not be cataloged yet. And so they don't appear in the search engines. So oh. as if they don't exist, which we don't accept, right? Barry and I don't accept that they don't <laughs> exist anymore. Okay? For, for, for a state official, how does that not exist? Any yeah. paperwork, uh, you know, she, Janina was a, as Barry mentioned, she worked for a Polish relief organization after the war. She traveled throughout Poland. She traveled abroad. So of mm -hmm. course there was a tail on her, right? Someone had to report what she was doing, what she was saying, because Poland was communist at the time, right? Mm -hmm. And so there has to be some paper trail. And I think it's just a matter of time that we will discover more. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for that clarification because I was thinking, oh my goodness, who would not give you to these documents? Okay, they just weren't available. <laughs> I'm yeah, yeah, that's right. So I have a question about the about her going in and out of 
the concentration camp. What? How? How was that possible? I I've been to um, Auschwitz and Krakow when I was younger, and what I learned from there, it was it was not a a, a, a rotating door. It was a you go in and that's it situation. <laughs> so please tell me more about that. Yes. Well, uh, as an official of this relief organization, uh, she was uh, able to uh, request permission to provide food for Polish prisoners within Maidana. And, and she also, her organization also uh, arranged for packages to be sent to prisoners from their families. And these were extremely important for the prisoners' survival. I mean, Majdanek was an indescribable hellhole. It had in 1943 by far the highest mortality rate of any concentration camp, including Auschwitz. And prisoners often died within three weeks of being sent there. So she got this permission to provide the food, but generally you know, she could only like get up to the main gate of the camp mm. right? and then it would be taken over. But she just kept going to the SS. She befriended certain members of the SS staff and certain guards. And she just had this way of making her proposals sound just so common sense. These are measures that are obviously in the Germans' interest. Why would you not want to do this? Mm -hmm. You know, so that she was actually able to get access inside Maidan. There were five different prisoner compounds, and she was able to take the deliveries right to each of the compounds. And at each one, there was a group of prisoners was assigned to take in the food. And through her work with the resistance, uh, it was possible to ensure that a resistance member was in that group every time. Right? And so then that made it easier for her to uh, pass messages back and forth and also to help members of the resistance in the different compounds communicate with each other. And so they were able to set up a whole central command of the resistance in the camp. Wow. But there was no other concentration camp where where this kind of relief activity occurred. No, no other camp allowed the local population to provide food for the prisoners. Majdanek was unusual though in that it was the first uh, concentration camp to be established outside the borders of what the SS considered to be Nazi Germany. Okay. And so it was in, it was in occupied Poland and uh, it was surrounded by Poles. And so uh, it was also very, very rudimentary. Uh, it was not, you, you went to Auschwitz and it was far removed from everything. Or, you know, you couldn't see through the walls at the main camp or anything. But, but Majdanek was out in this plain that was right next to the city of, of Lublin. People in Lublin could stand on their roofs and see down into the camp or from one of the nearby villages they could see inside the compounds. So it was it was not a secret place. Wow. For being so infamous and evil, it, I'm I'm sad that it's not as well known as the other ones. So I'm I'm really thankful for you, your book to bring more light to Majdanek. So uh, speaking of that, I, I would love to know what makes this book stand out among the other World War II books that are out there. Now, there are, of course, many heroic tales of resistance and, and rescue uh, in World War II, uh, some of the best known 
happened in Poland. Mm. Schindler's List is about Oscar Schindler, who saved yeah. some maybe 1,200 Jews. Uh, there are a lot of treatments of Irina Zendler, who uh, smuggled hundreds of children out of the Warsaw ghetto. His wife is about the Warsaw zookeepers who rescued, who hid probably 300 Nazi victims, both Jewish and non-Jewish. All of these people, though, were non-Jews who rescued Jews. And that's what you see in, in stories about rescue. Um, mm. Whereas our book is about a Jew who rescued non-Jews. And she did, and she accomplished it in really staggering numbers. Uh, we documented that she arranged the release of over 9,000 prisoners. And many, many more Poles probably survived because of the aid that she was able to give them, both through her organization and through the resistance. So uh, it's it's really staggering. Yeah. And then also, there have been some really fascinating books that have come out recently about women. Yeah. Who worked resistance and worked to rescue Nazi victims. So Larry Loftus is the, uh, the watchmaker's daughter. Sonia Purnell's uh, A Woman of No Importance and Sarah Rose's D-Day Girls. Those all deal, again, with uh, non-Jews who mm. resisted the Nazis and in some cases saved Jewish victims. Then there's also Judy Battalion's uh, terrific The Light of Days about mm. the ghetto girls who, who served in the Jewish resistance in Poland. But one thing that Yanina did that none of those women did was to negotiate directly with Nazi and SS officials, with people who were determined to destroy her and everyone like her. She actually succeeded in persuading them to let her help their victims. So wild. When I was reading the book, I I had to read that first introduction a few times because I, I, I was so confused about, wait, hold on. She went face to face with the Nazis in charge of the camp and then persuaded them. But also when they didn't do what she wanted them to do, she just went above their head and went to the next level. That is incredible. Joanna, would you would you like to add to that? Sure. I think, of course, there are there are many books about World War II, about the Holocaust in Poland, obviously. But what makes this book special is that this really is a story about an exceptional woman. I mean, mm -hmm. Yanina Melberg was an exceptional woman mm -hmm. who chose an unusual survival strategy yeah. as a Jewish as a Jewish woman during the Holocaust, and that was to not only assume a false identity and to masquerade as a as a Polish aristocrat but also to endanger her life every day, her life and her husband's life, who was also hiding under a false identity as a Polish count. So she was endangering her life every day to help other people. And I think this is really exceptional. And the other way I think that the book stands out among other books on World, on World War II is that many books concern the Holocaust, obviously, right? the Holocaust of the Jewish people. But our book really zooms in on the persecution, the Nazi persecution measures uh, against, uh, against ethnic Poles. So 
I think this is that, you know, you ask, how does it stand out? I think these are some, some of the ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with both of your statements. So that brings me to my next question. For me, this book is so different than any other World War II book that I have read, not only because it's from the perspective of a Jewish person helping non-Jewish people, and also it's from a woman's perspective, but usually when we hear about, you know, the women of World War II, it's, you know, the snipers, the nurses, the spies, things like that. But this book is very different than all of those other books. And I, I, I'd like to ask you, what, what do you think is the importance of having these different kinds of stories, this diversity, when we learn history, when we talk about history? Well, I, I have kind of a funny story. In okay. The historian who gave me Ganina's memoir hadn't tried to get it published. And one thing he did was he sent it to a very eminent Holocaust historian in the United States. Uh, and this historian said, well, it's a very interesting story, but the experiences of one woman Holocaust survivor don't make a compelling case for publication. So it, it, that, the experiences of one woman Holocaust survivor don't make a compelling case for publication. So at, at, at that time, Holocaust studies was really in its infancy. When I went to graduate school, there was no Holocaust studies, mm. right? And, and it really focused then on the German perpetrators and how the Holocaust was carried out. But now uh, the field has expanded terrifically and really much more uh, looking at the responses and experiences of all kinds of people who were affected by the Holocaust, including uh, particularly victims and including women and children, which is Joanna's specialty. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Barry is raising a very important point about the evolution of the field of Holocaust studies mm -hmm. and how we incorporate various voices to tell this complex story because the way that women experienced persecution, I mean, of course they experienced it, let's say they belong to a particular persecuted group, right? They, they experienced it that way, but they also experienced it as women. And so mm -hmm. that is a very important, uh, that's very important to note. And just in the last two years, there have been two major conferences on women in the Holocaust. And Barry oh. and I, presented our work at both of those conferences. And I think this is really significant that this story of Yanina Josephine Melberg is included in those in those conferences, right? Uh, to illuminate yeah. voices, women's experiences. There is a new center that is established in Israel. Um, it's like an international study center on women during the Holocaust which already tells us about the importance of telling Holocaust history, World War II history, using women's voices. Yeah, our, our book, by the way, deals not just with Yanina, but also uh, deals with some other women who, who served in the Polish resistance and whose activities intersected mm -hmm. with Yanina's. And I, as was mentioned earlier, I worked in genocide studies and genocide yeah. And the Holocaust is the most thoroughly documented genocide in human history. So it's 
tremendously important source for understanding genocides and how we might prevent them. Mm-hmm. And the focus in the field of genocide prevention is on how uh, communities that are targeted for persecution and mass crimes, how they can use their space for action to mm-hmm. defend themselves, to mitigate the consequences of what's happening, and how the outside world can help them. So th- these are very important, and particularly in looking at, at different members, what different members of those targeted communities are able to do. And women had very special abilities for resistance because they could travel around more easily without being noticed. So they were routinely couriers and spies, as you mentioned, right? They worked in offices, so they they saw German documents. They could copy forms, you know, for IDs. Uh, they, they had a very, very important role to play. Excellent. Thank you so much to the both of you. I would love to sit and talk about this all day long, but I also don't want to have too many spoilers for the book because this is definitely a must read. Could you please let us know when the book is going to be coming out? Sure. So the book is going to be published on January 23rd, 2024 by Simon and Schuster. Yes. Awesome. I'm so excited for that to come out. I am very lucky because I got to read an advanced copy of it. I feel very fortunate. Um, and I loved every single page of the book. And it is definitely at 2024. Yes, yeah. 2024. <laughs> Woo, we're getting on in years. Um, a 2024 must read. And I will definitely be putting all the information to find this book and information about Barry and Joanna in the show notes. So please go check out their other work. Please go check out the organizations that they work for and worked for. And I just want to say thank you again so much for taking the time to share this information with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to research this incredibly important story. And uh, is there any any final message that you'd like to say before we end the podcast today? No, just thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thank you. And I will see you in the outro. Okay, bye. Thank you again. <laughs> Well, dear one, that'll do it for episode 114 of For the Love of History podcast. Thank you so much for joining us for such an important and informative episode. I cannot thank Joanna and Barry enough for joining us. It was such a pleasure to talk with them. And I cannot wait for you to get your hands on their book, The Counterfeit Countess. Once again, all the information for pre-order and ordering will be in the show notes so that you can pick up this book first thing when it comes out next year in January. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to spread the history love, please be sure to share this or any episode with your other history BFF. Leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform, or tell me how you feel about this particular episode using Spotify's new comment feature, and it is so fun to know what you think about each individual episode. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can join us over on Patreon, where we have lots of extra history goodies and content. If you'd like to have some official For the Love of History merch, you can head on over to the merch store and get some 
absolutely adorable sweatshirts like the one I was wearing in the video. There's t-shirts and long sleeves and hoodies and crop tops and all sorts of fun stuff with designs made by yours truly. But if those options aren't available for you or if it's just not your style, there are some wonderful free 99 ways to support for the love of history by subscribing on YouTube, commenting, sharing, liking, all of that other fun stuff to let the algorithm gods know that you think this content is pretty cool and that other people should see it as well. And as this season and this year is winding down, I'd just like to remind you that the for the Love of History census is out right now, so you can participate in that. Let me know what kind of content you'd like to see, what things that you are enjoying, some changes that you'd like, or any other feedback slash suggestions like what author you would like to have interviewed in season eight. Filling out this census really helps me create content that you want to see and better serve this absolutely wonderful community. And by filling out the census, you will be eligible for a wonderful For the Love of History merch and book giveaway that will happen at the beginning of season eight. So you've got plenty of time to fill out the census. It only takes about three minutes to do it. So if you have time, it would be absolutely wonderful for you to fill that out. So with that out of the way, all of our housekeeping done, I would like to remind you, especially during this holiday season, to take care of yourself. If you need a break from your family or anybody else that you are around this holiday season, please, please make sure to do that. Take a break for yourself. Get yourself some water. Take a few deep breaths. You deserve to relax. So take a sippy sip of your water, do something that makes you happy, and I will see you next week for our final author interview of season seven. You're gonna love it. And then after that, we've got one more episode and we're done with season seven and the 2023 years. So I can't wait to see you in that next episode. And until then, love you so much. Talk to you later. Bye. Why is there a metronome right now? Okay. <laughs> what did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.